0: Chapter Two of The Mother's Recompense by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Anne Fletcher, Richmond, Tasmania, two thousand and twenty one. Chapter Two She went out an hour later, her thoughts waltzing and eddying like the sunlit dust which the wind kept whirling round the corners in spasmodic gusts everything in her mind was hot and cold and beating and blowing about, like the weather on that dancing draughty day. The very pavements of the familiar streets and the angles of the buildings seemed to be spinning with the rest, as if the heaviest substances had suddenly grown imponderable. It must, she thought, be a little like the way the gravestones will behave on the Day of Judgment to make sure of where she was she had to turn down one of the white streets leading to the sea and fix her eyes on that wedge of blue between the houses as if it were the only ballast to her brain the only substantial thing left i am glad it is one of the days when the sea is firm she thought the glittering expanse flattened by the gale and solidified by the light rose up to meet her as she walked toward it the pavement lifting her and flying under her like wings till it dropped her down in the glare of the promenade where the top-knots of the struggling palms swam on the wind like chained and long-finned sea-things against that sapphire wall climbing halfway up the sky she sat down on a bench clinging sideways as if lashed to a boat's deck and continued to steady her eyes on the mediterranean To collect her thoughts, she tried to imagine that nothing had happened, that neither of the two cables had come, and that she was preparing to lead her usual life as mapped out in the miniature engagement book in her handbag. She had her set now in the big Riviera town where she had taken refuge in nineteen sixteen after the final break with Chris, and where, after two years of war work and a reconnaissance francaise medal, she could carry her head fairly high and even condescend a little to certain newcomers. She drew forth the engagement book, smiling at her childish game of pretending at eleven a hat to try on eleven thirty a dress from then to two o'clock nothing at two a slow solemn drive with poor old mrs Minnity in the last surviving private victoria in the town tea and bridge at countess lansker's from four to six a look in at the rectory of the american church where there was a ladies guild meeting about the devastated region's fancy fair Lastly, a little dinner at the casino with the Horace Betterleys and a few other pals. Yes, a rather better-than-average day. And now, why now, she could kick over the whole apple cart if she chose. Chuck it all, except the new dress and hat the tedious drive with the prosy patronizing old woman the bridge which was costing her more than it ought with that third-rate cosmopolitan set of laura the long discussion at the rectory as to whether it would do to ask mrs schlachtberger to take a stall at the fair in spite of her unfortunate name and the little dinner with the Horace Betterleys and their dull, noisy friends, who wanted to see life, and didn't know that you can't see it unless you first had the brains to imagine it. Yes, she could drop it all now, and never, never see one of them again. My daughter, my daughter Anne! oh you don't know my little girl Oh, she has changed hasn't she <laughs> growing up is a way the children have yes it is ageing for a poor mother to trot about such a young giantess oh i'm going grey already you know here on the temples fred Landers is it you really dear old fred oh, no of course i've never forgotten you known me anywhere oh you would oh nonsense look at my grey hair oh, but men don't change lucky men why i remember even that egyptian seal ring of yours my daughter my daughter Anne. let me introduce you to this big girl of mine my little Anne. it was curious for the first time she realized that in thinking back over the years since she had been parted from Anne, she seldom nowadays went farther than the episode with chris yet it was long before it was eighteen years ago that she had lost anne lost was the euphemism she had invented as people call the furies the amiable ones because a mother couldn't confess even to her most secret self that she had willingly deserted her child yet that was what she had done and now her thoughts shrinking and shivering were being forced back upon the fact she had left anne when anne was a baby of three left her with a dreadful pang a rending of the inmost fibres and yet a sense of unutterable relief because to do so was to escape from the oppression of her married life the thick atmosphere of self-approval and unperceivingness which emanated from john Clifaine like coal-gas from a leaking furnace so she had put it at the time so in her closest soul scrutiny she had to put it still i couldn't breathe That was all she had to say in her own defence. She had said it first, more's the pity, to Hilton Davies, with the result that two months later she was on his yacht, headed for the West Indies. And even then she couldn't breathe any better, not after the first week or two. The asphyxiation was of a different kind, that was all. It was a year later that she wrote to her husband. There was no answer She wrote again. At any rate, let me see, Anne. I can't live without Anne. I'll go and live with her anywhere you decide. Again, no answer. She wrote to her mother-in-law, and Mrs. Cliffane's lawyer sent the letter back unopened. She wrote in her madness to the child's nurse, and got a reply from the same legal firm, requesting her to cease to annoy her husband's family she ceased. Of all this, she recalled now only the parting from Anne, and the subsequent vain efforts to recover her. Of the agent of her release, of Hilton Davies, she remembered, in the deep sense of remembering, nothing. He had become to her, with his flourish and his yachting clothes, and the big shining yacht, and the cocoa palms, and general setting of cool drinks and tropical luxury, as unreal as somebody in a novel the highly-coloured hero or villain on the jacket from her inmost life he had vanished into a sort of remote pictorial perspective where a woman of her name figured with him in muslin dresses and white sunshades herself as unreal as a lady on a jacket dim also had grown the years that followed Lonely, humdrum years at Saint-Jean-de-Luce, at Bordigare, at Dinard. She would settle in a cheap place where there were a circulating library, a mild climate, a few quiet bridge-playing couples whom one got to know through the doctor or the clergyman, then would grow tired and drift away again. Once she went back to America at the time of her mother's death. It was in midsummer and Anne, now ten years old, was in Canada with her father and grandmother. Kate Cliffane, not herself a New Yorker, and with only two or three elderly and disapproving relatives left in the small southern city of her origin, stood alone before the elaborately organized defences of a vast New York clan, and knew herself helpless. But in her madness she dreamed of a dash to Canada, an abduction, schemes requiring money, friends, support, all the power and ruse she was so lacking in. She gave that up in favour of a midnight visit, inspired by Anna Karenina, to the child's nursery. But on the way to Quebec she learned that the family had left in a private car for the Rocky Mountains. She turned about and took the first steamer to France all this too had become dim to her since she had known chris for the first time when she met him her soul's lungs seemed full of air life still dated for her from that day in spite of the way he had hurt her of his having inflicted on her the bitterest pain she had ever suffered he had yet given her more than he could take away at thirty-nine her real self had been born Without him she would never have had herself, and yet at what a cost she had bought it. All the secluded penitential years that had gone before wiped out at a stroke, stained, defiled by follies she could not bear to think of among people from whom her soul recoiled. Poor Chris! It was not that he was what is called vicious, but he was never happy without what he regarded as excitement. He was always telling her that an artist had to have excitement. She could not reconcile his idea of what this stimulus consisted in with his other tastes and ideas, with that flashing play of intelligence which had caught her up into an air she had never breathed before. To be capable of that thought-play, of those flights, and yet to need gambling, casinos, rowdy crowds, and all the pursuits devised to kill time for the uninventive and lethargic. He said he saw things in that kind of life that she couldn't see. But since he also saw this unseeable, and she knew he did, in nature, in poetry and painting, in their shared sunsets and moonrises, in their first long dreaming days far from jazz bands and baccarat tables why wasn't that enough and how could the other rubbishy things excite the same kind of emotions in him it had been the torment of her torments the inmost pang of her misery that she had never understood and that when she thought of him now it was through that blur of noise and glare and popping corks and screaming bands that she had to grope back to the first fleeting chris who had loved her and waked her at eleven o'clock she found herself she didn't know how at the milliners other women envious or undecided were already flattening their noses against the panes that bird of paradise and what they cost nowadays but she went in cool and confident and asked gaily to try on her new hat she must have been smiling for the saleswoman received her with a smile what a complexion ma'am one sees you are not afraid of the wind but when the hat was produced though it was the copy of one she had already tried on it struck mrs cliffane as absurdly youthful even ridiculous had she really been dressing all this time like a girl in her teens you forget that i've a grown-up daughter madame bertha allons madame plaisante she drew herself up with dignity a daughter of twenty-one i'm joining her in new york next week What would she think of me if I arrived in a hat more youthful than hers? Show me something darker, please. Yes, the one with the autumn leaves. See, I'm growing grey on the temples. Don't try to make me look like a flapper. What's the price of that blue fox over there? I like a grey fur with grey hair. In the end, she stalked out, offended by the milliner's refusal to take her grey hair seriously, and reflecting, with a retrospective shiver, that her way of dressing and her demeanour must have thoroughly fixed in all these people's minds the idea that she was one of the silly, vain fools who imagine they look like their own daughters. At the dressmaker's, the scene repeated itself the dashing little frock prepared for her an orange silk handkerchief peeping from the breast-pocket on which an anchor was embroidered made her actually blush and reflecting that money wouldn't matter now the thought of the money had really not come to her before she persuaded the dressmaker to take the inappropriate garment back and ordered instead something sober but elaborate and ever so much more expensive It seemed a part of the general unreal rapture that even the money-worry should have vanished. Where should she lunch? She inclined to a quiet restaurant in a back street. Then the old habit of following the throng, the need of rubbing shoulders with a crowd of unknown people, swept her automatically towards the casino, and sat her down in a blare of brass instruments and hard sunshine at the only table left. After all, as she had often heard Chris say, one could feel more alone in a crowd, but gradually it came over her that to feel alone was not in the least what she wanted. She had never, for years at any rate, been able to bear it for long. The crowd, formerly a solace and an escape, had become a habit, and being face to face with her own thoughts, like facing a stranger. Oppressed and embarrassed, she tried to make conversation with herself, but the soundless words died unuttered, and she sought distraction in staring about her at the unknown faces. Their number became oppressive. It made her feel small and insignificant, to think that of all this vulgar feasting throng, not one knew the amazing thing which had befallen her, knew that she was awaited by an only daughter in a big house in new york a house she would re-enter in a few days yes actually in a few days with the ease of a long-absent mistress a mistress returning from an immense journey but to whom it seems perfectly natural and familiar to be once again smiling on old friends from the head of her table The longing to be with people to whom she could tell her news made her decide, after all, to live out her day as she had originally planned it. Before leaving the hotel she had announced her departure to the astonished Aileen—it was agreeable for once to astonish Aileen—and dispatched her to the post office with a cable for New York and a telegram for a Paris steamship company. In the cable she had said simply, "'Coming, darling.' They were the words with which she used to answer little Anne's calls from the nursery. That impatient, reiterated, "'Mummy! Mummy! I want my mummy!' which had kept on echoing in her ears through so many sleepless nights. The phrase had flashed into her head the moment she sat down to write the cable, and she had kept murmuring to herself ever since, "'Mummy!' "'Mummy, I want my mummy!' She would have liked to quote the words to Mrs. Minity, whose door she was now approaching. But how would she explain to the old lady, who was deaf and self-absorbed, and thought it a privilege for anyone to go driving with her, why little Anne's cry had echoed so long in the void? No, she could not speak of that to anyone. She must stick to her old "'Take it for granted' attitude,' the attitude which had carried her successfully over so many slippery places. Mrs. Minity was very much preoccupied about her foot-warmer, She spent the first quarter of an hour in telling Mrs. Cliffane that the rector's wife, whom she had taken out the day before, had possessed herself of the object without so much as a may-eye, and kept her big feet on it till Mrs. Minity had had to stop the carriage and ask the coachman in a loud voice how it was that the foot-warmer had not been put in as usual. Whereupon, if you please, Mrs. Merriman had simply said, Oh, I have it, thanks, dear Mrs. Minity, such a comfort on these windy days. Though, why, a woman who keeps no carriage and has to tramp the streets at all hours should have cold feet, I can't imagine, nor, in fact, wholly believe her when she says so, said Mrs. Minnity, in a tone of one to whom a defective circulation is the recognised prerogative of carriage-owners. I notice, my dear, that you never complain of being cold." she added approvingly, relegating Kate, as an enforced pedestrian, to Mrs. Merriman's class, but acknowledging in her a superior sense of propriety. "'I'm always glad,' she added, "'to take you out on windy days, for battling with the mistral on foot must be so very exhausting, and in the carriage, of course, it is so easy to reach a sheltered place.' mrs Minity was still persuaded that to sit in her hired victoria behind its somnolent old pair was one of the most rapid modes of progression devised by modern science she talked as if her carriage were an aeroplane and was as particular in avoiding narrow streets and waiting at the corner when she called for friends who lived in them as if she had to choose a safe alighting-ground Mrs. Minity had come to the Riviera thirty years before, after an attack of bronchitis, and finding the climate milder and the life easier than in Brooklyn, had not gone back. Mrs. Clefane never knew what roots she had broken in the upheaval, for everything immediately surrounding her assumed such colossal proportions that remoter facts, even concerning herself, soon faded to the vanishing point only now and then when a niece from bridgeport sent her a bottle of brandy-peaches or a nephew from brooklyn wrote to say that her income had been reduced by the foreclosure of a mortgage did the family emerge from its transatlantic mists and mrs Minity become for a moment gratified or irate at the intrusion but such emotions at their acutest were but faint shadows of those aroused by the absence of her foot-warmer or the salvation armies having called twice in the same month for her subscription or one of the horses having a stiff shoulder and being replaced for a long hazardous week by another known to the same stable for twenty years and whom the patron himself undertook to drive so that mrs Minnity should not miss her airing she had thought of staying in till her own horse recovered but the doctor had absolutely forbidden it so she had taken her courage in both hands and gone out with the substitute who was not even of the same colour as the horse she was used to but i took valerian every night she added and doubled my digitalis kate clefane as she listened for the hundredth time remembered that she had once thought mrs minity a rather impressive old lady somewhat arrogant and very prosy but with a distinct atmosphere and a charming half-obsolete vocabulary suggesting signers and colonial generals which was a refreshing change from the over-refinement of mrs merriman and the Betterleys' monotonous slang now compared to certain long-vanished figures of the cliffhane background compared even to the hated figure of old mrs cliffhane mrs Minnity shrank to the semblance of a vulgar fussy old woman old mrs cliffhane never bragged whatever she did kate thought how ridiculous all that fuss about driving behind a strange horse would have seemed to her after all good breeding even in the odious implies a certain courage her mother-in-law as she mused assumed the commanding yet not unamiable shape of a roman matron of heroic mould a kind of it hurts not o my paetus falling first upon the sword the bridge players in countess lanska's pastille scented and smoke-blurred drawing-room seemed to have undergone the same change as mrs the very room as kate entered on fire from the wind seemed stuffier untidier and yes vulgarer than she had remembered the empty glasses with drowned lemon peel the perpetually unemptied ash-trays the sketches by the countess's latest protegee splashy flower-markets rococo churches and white balustrades umbrella pines and cobalt seas the musical instruments tossed about on threadbare cashmere shawls covering still more threadbare sofas even the heart-rending gaze of the outspread white bear with the torn-off ear which ever since kate had known him had clung to his flattened head by the same greasy thread all this disorder was now for the first time reflected in the faces about the card-tables not one of them men or women if asked where they had come from where they were going or why they had done such and such things or refrained from doing such other would have answered truthfully not as kate knew from any particular or at any rate permanent need of concealment but because they lived in a chronic state of mental inaccuracy excitement and inertia which made it vaguely exhilarating to lie and definitely fatiguing to be truthful she had not meant to stay long for her first glance at their new faces told her that to them also she would not be able to speak of what had happened but to subdue her own agitation and divert their heavy eyes the easiest thing was to take her usual hand at bridge and once she had dropped into her place the familiar murmur of "'No trumps. Yes, diamonds. Who dealt? No bid. No, yes, no,' held her to her seat, soothed by the mesmeric touch of habit. At the rectory, Mrs. Merriman exclaimed, "'Oh, there she is!' in a tone implying that she had had to stand between Mrs. Cliffane and the assembled committee." kate remembered that she was secretary and expected to read the minutes have i kept you all waiting oh so sorry she beamed in a voice that sang hallelujahs mrs merriman pushed the book toward her with a protecting smile and mrs parley plush of the villa mimosa she always told you it had been quite her own idea calling it that visibly wondered that mrs merriman should be so tolerant they were all there the american consul's wife mild plump and irreproachable the lovely mrs prentice of san francisco who took things and had been involved in a drug scandal the comtesse de saint maxime who had been a loach of philadelphia and had figured briefly on the operatic stage the Consul's sister, who dressed like a flapper, and had been engaged during the war to a series of American officers, all of whom seemed to have given her celluloid bangles, and a pale Mrs. Marsh, who used to be seen about with a tall, tired man called the Colonel, whose family name was not Marsh, but for whom she wore mourning when he died, explaining, somewhat belatedly, that he was a cousin lastly there was mrs fred langley of albany whose husband was wanted at home for misappropriation of funds and who emerging from the long seclusion consequent upon this unfortunate episode had now blossomed into a prominent war-worker while mr langley devoted himself to the composition of patriotic poems which he read flanked by the civil and military authorities at all the allied inaugurations and commemorations so that by the close of the war he had become its recognized bard and his lafayette can we forget was quoted with tears by the very widows and orphans he had defrauded facing mrs merriman sat the rector in clerical pepper-and-salt clothes and a secular pepper-and-salt moustache talking cheerful slang in a pulpit voice mrs clefane looked about her with new eyes save for their hostess the consul's wife and mrs langley things had been said of all the women even concerning mrs parley plush the older inhabitants though they all went to her teas at the villa mimosa smiled and hinted and they all knew each other's stories or at least the current versions and affected to disapprove of each other and yet be tolerant thus following the example of mrs merriman who simply wouldn't listen to any of those horrors and of mr merriman whose principle it was to believe the best till the worst stared him in the face and then to say i understand it all happened a long time ago to all of them the rectory was a social nucleus one after another they had found their way there subscribed to parochial charities sent mrs merriman fruit and flowers and suppressed their yawns at mothers meetings and sewing circles it was part of the long long toll they had to pay to the outraged goddess of respectability and at the rectory they had made each other's acquaintance and thus gradually widened their circle and saved more hours from solitude their most dreaded enemy kate cliffhane knew it all by heart for eighteen years she had trodden that round the rector knew it too if ever a still youngish and still prettyish woman in quiet but perfect clothes with a scent of violets asked to see him after service he knew she was one more recruit in all the fashionable riviera colonies these ladies were among the staunchest supporters of their respective churches even the oldest stoutest grimmest of his flock had had her day mr merriman remembered what his predecessor had hinted of old mrs orbit's past and how he had smiled at the idea seeing mrs orbit that first sunday planted in her front pew like a very deborah some of the prettiest or who had been at least exchanged parishes as it were like that sweet lady de tracy who joined the american fold while miss julia jetridge from new york attended the anglican services they both said it was because they preferred the nearest church but the rector knew better than that then the war came The war, which in those bland southern places, and to those uprooted drifting women, was chiefly a healing and amalgamating influence. It was awful, of course, to admit even to oneself that it could be that, but in the light of her own deliverance, Kate Cliffayne knew that she and all the others had so viewed it. They had shuddered and wept, toiled hard and made their sacrifices of clothes and bridge of butter and sweets and carriage hire but all the while they were creeping slowly back into the once impregnable stronghold of social position getting to know people who used to cut them being invited to the prefecture and the consulate and lots of houses of which they used to say with feigned indifference Go to those dreary people, not for the world, because they knew they'd no chance of getting there. Yes, the war had brought them peace, strange and horrible as it was to think it. Kate's eyes filled as she looked about the table at those haggard, powdered masks which had once glittered with youth and insolence and pleasure. All they wanted now was what she herself wanted only a few short hours ago-to be bowed to when they caught certain people's eyes, to be invited to one more dull house, to be put on the rector's executive committees and pour tea at the consuless's afternoons. May I? a man's voice fluted, and a noble silver-thatched head with a beak-like nose and soft double chin was thrust into the doorway. Mr Paley cried missus Merriman and murmured to the nearest ladies for the music i thought he'd better come to day everyone greeted Mr Paley with enthusiasm it was poky being only women and the rector and mr paley had the dearest little flat in one of the old houses of the vieux port such a tiny flat that one wondered how any one so large manly and yet full of quick womanish movements managed to fit in between the bric-a-brac mr paley clasped his hostess's hand in a soft palm "'I've brought my young friend Lyon Carstairs. "'You won't mind. "'He's going to help me with the program. "'But one glance at Mr. Carstairs "'made it clear that he did not mean "'to help anyone with anything. "'He held out two lax fingers to Mrs. Merriman, "'sank into an armchair, "'and let his antinous lids droop "'over his sullen, deep grey eyes. "'He's awfully good on Sicilian music.' "'Noted down folk-songs at Teormina,' Mr. Paley whispered, his leonine head with its bushy eyebrows and silver crown bending confidentially to his neighbour. "'Order!' rapped the rector, and the meeting began. At the casino that night, Kate Cliffane, on the whole, was more bored than at the rectory after all at the merrimans there was a rather anxious atmosphere of kindliness of a desire to help and a retrospective piety about the war which had served them such a good turn and of which they were still trying in their tiny measure to alleviate the ravages whereas the betterlies what "'Another begging-list? Oh, no, my dear Kate, you don't. Stony broke, that's what I am, and so's Harry. Ain't you, Harry?' (laughs) Marcia betterly would scream, clanking her jewelled bangles, twisting one heavy hand through her pearls, and clutching with the other the platinum and diamond wrist-bag on which she always jokingly pretended that Kate Cliffane had her eye.' look out sid she's a regular train robber hold you up at your own door i believe she's squared the police if she hadn't she'd have been run in long ago oh the war what war is there another war on what that old one why i thought that one was over long ago you can't get anybody i know to talk about it even guess we've got our work cut out paying for it added Horace betterly, stretching a begemmed and bloated hand toward the wine-list. "'Well, I should say,' his wife agreed with him, Sid, what form of liquid refreshment!' And Sid, a puffy Chicago businessman, grew pink in his effort to look knowing and not name the wrong champagne. "'It was odd.' During her drive with Mrs. Minnity, at Madame Lansker's, and again at the rectory, Kate Cliffane had meant to proclaim her great news, and she had not yet breathed a word of it. The fact was, it was too great, too precious to waste on Mrs. Minnity's inattention, too sacred to reveal to Madame Lansker's bridge-players, and too glorious to overwhelm those poor women at the rectory with and now in the glare and clatter of the casino with the sid's and harry's exchanging winks and the mrs sid's and harry's craning fat necks to see the last new cocotte or the young prince about whom there were such awful stories here, of all places to unbear her secret name her daughter how could she ever have thought it possible only toward the end of the long deafening dinner when marcia and mrs sid began to make plans for a week at monte carlo and she found herself being impressed into the party as she had so often and so willingly before did mrs cliffhane suddenly find herself assuming the defensive you can't or you won't now you katy cat you marcia threatened her with a scented cigarette own up now what's doing what you on to this time ain't she naughty we ain't grand enough for her girls and then suddenly at a sign from horace and lowering her voice but not quite enough to make the communication private oh see here kate darling of course you know as our guest why of course naturally (laughs) while on the other side mrs sid drawled what i want to know is where else can anybody go at this season mrs clefane surveyed her calmly to new york at least i can they all screamed it at her at once new york and again she dropped the two syllables slowly from disdainful lips well i never what for though questioned horace from the depths of a fresh bumper mrs clefane swept the table with a cool eye business family business she said crikey burst from horace and say sid a, a drop of fine just to help us over the shock well, here's to the success of the ladies' family business, he concluded with a just perceptible wink, emptying his champagne goblet and replacing it by the big bubble-shaped liqueur glass into which a thoughtful waiter had already measured out the proper quantity of the most expensive fiend. Chapter two.